right. Good evening. Welcome, Rock family. We're excited that you're here tonight. My name is Andrew Nemeth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I've got one of the great privileges of getting to work with the youth and young adults and also being a part of the executive team. So working with some of the, um, uh, managing some of the day-to-day stuff that happens uh, behind the scenes. And so getting to do all those things. I'm really excited to get to share with you all tonight. Um, The title of my message this evening is What's on Your Mind? And I've created it as sort of a two-part message. Um, originally, Pastor Mike had asked me to, to speak, um, but as the Lord began to download this to my heart, I thought, oh, this is, I don't want to try and cram it all and just rush it and just sort of like hit you with the fire hydrant all in one. And so I asked if I could do it over two weeks. And so a part one and part two, and, and he was gracious enough to allow me to do that. And so uh, if you're here tonight, this will be the first half, and then I'd encourage you and invite you back next week to hear the second half, and I think it'll really bless you. Um, If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Philippians 4, but it'll take me a little while to get there. And so you can open it up or you can put your bookmark there or stick a hand in there and sort of hold that place. We will arrive there soon. But um, before we get started, I want to talk just a little bit more about myself to help connect. Um, I know I've I've been here at The Rock since 2011, Uh, moved up from Dallas to Colorado to work at The Rock and uh, have really enjoyed my time here. But despite being here for for over five years, there's still quite a few people that see me and think, oh, like, where'd he come from? Um, And so that's mostly because I I work kind of both behind the scenes and with the youth. And so I'm not always in on Sunday mornings or or as present as uh, with the adults as I'd like to be. Um, But a little bit more about myself. Uh, Luna that was up here, she's my wife. Uh, She and I just celebrated four years married. And so that was super exciting for us. As she mentioned, we have a 16-month-year-old uh, named Ryan Kate, and she is adorable. She's just like stolen our hearts and taught us so much about God's love and really what it means to, to be a parent and to be loved by parents and loved by a God who uh, regards himself as a father. And so that's been an adventure and a joy. Um, tonight, I'm, I'm really excited to get to share a, this message, What's on Your Mind. The Lord's been teaching me, and I didn't even realize it, but going back several months, he started to show me things that I thought was just for me. And then sort of when this, tonight's opportunity came about, I thought, oh, this is what like, the Lord's been showing in me that I'm excited to get to show with you all. Um, and so if you would allow me to pray as we, as we jump in. Father, we love you so much. And I pray that tonight, Lord, that you would give me your words to speak. Lord, my ideas in and of themselves aren't astounding or great or noteworthy at all. But Father, your revelation and what your Holy Spirit is speaking is so so valuable. And so, Lord, help me to communicate that clearly tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, In the back, uh, someone who doesn't get recognized very often is Alan. He's our lead uh, sound engineer, and so he helps make sure that I sound good uh, when I get to share. And one of the neat things about Alan is he's been here for a few years, and Alan and I don't work in the same department, but we have a lot of crossover. Uh, we talked quite a bit. And, and the first time I met Alan, we were both a little standoffish. Um, not really because we didn't like each other, but uh, our strength finders is one of the things that we've done as a staff is like determine 
um, our strengths. And so there's a book called Strength Finders. It identifies 34 unique strengths and then tells you kind of what your top five or 10 are. And, and so he and I both have Relator as our top strengths and our top five. And what that means is the relator is the type of person who has a very, very tight-knit, close circle, and then everyone else is sort of like, I like you, and I love you, but I am loyal to death to these close people, and you're really nice. And that's kind of how, how, it, treats, how, it, how it interacts with other people. And so on a staff environment, that's helpful, because if you interact with a relator and you think, oh, like, Andrew's cordial, and he's nice, but I don't feel like he's ever really, like, opened up. And it's like, oh, well, he's a relator. And so for the longest time, we had it on kind of, like, our inter-office email signatures. So someone would send a note, and you'd think, why are they talking to me about that in that way? And then you scroll down and see, like, oh, it's because their strengths are this, this, and this. And so Alan and I were both relators. And with that, we were both in each other's, like, outside circles. And we were cordial, and we were nice, but we never really got to know each other. And for the longest time, my own insecurity sort of fed into that, not, not remembering, not really putting two and two together. I felt distant from Alan, but didn't realize that he was a relator like me. And so he was just treating me the same way I treated dozens of other people. And so with that, I, my insecurity sort of said, like, oh, Alan must not like you. Like, he's not super friendly with you. Like, you guys don't text. You don't hang out. Like, he must not like you. And so in my mind, I began to think this way, and I sort of, like, distance him even further of like, oh, well, if he doesn't like me, like, I don't want to talk to him. Like, I don't want to mention this or do this thing with him. And then I can't remember how it shifted, but one day we bonded over some tech gadget or like online meme thing and, uh, and we hit it off. And since then, like, we've been, uh, had sort of a unique friendship where Luna will look over at dinner and I'll be texting someone. She's like, who are you texting? And I'm like, oh, it's Alan. And she laughs at me because like I get almost giddy like texting Alan because we'll like, like today he texted me that he bought a, a dust buster. And I was like, that's so awesome. And it was one of those things where it's like, who do you tell that you bought a dust buster? For me, it's Alan and I. Like we have that relationship now where we have been like bought into like a closer circle and we tell each other about like the great deals on dustbusters and things like that. But it took me a while to realize that the way I, I thought about Alan really affected the way I interacted with him. That nothing changed Alan in the terms of what I was thinking, but because I thought he didn't like me, my own insecurity, because I thought that he was choosing to be distant from me instead of just like, oh, well, that was kind of a strength that he had, that he was closer to his core than he was to like those auxiliary people it really respond, like really affected the way that I responded to him. And so instead of being close, instead of having these sort of like weird inside joke things, instead of sharing a love for tacos and Mexican food, um, we just stayed at arm's length. And it was because of, of my own thoughts. Nothing to do with Alan because of my own thoughts. Tonight what I want to explore is this idea that our thoughts determine how we respond to God. That whatever it is that we're thinking about God about his personality, about the way that he reacts or responds, the way that he is, his strengths or his temperament, it's going to affect the way that we respond to him. It's not going to change who he is, just like my thoughts about Alan didn't change who Alan was, but it will change how we respond to him. And so that's what I want to explore tonight. Next week, I want to, I want to take that a step further and look at how our thoughts determine how we allow God to respond to us. So tonight, how our thoughts determine how we respond to God, and then next week, how those same thoughts 
can determine how we allow God to respond to us. Again, in both of these situations, nothing is changing God because he is unchanging and our thoughts aren't so powerful that we can change him. But it does change how we respond to him and how we allow him to respond to us. So that's what I'm excited to get to share. With that, I want to I want to point you to a quote from Frank Outlaw, who was the late president of the Bilo stores in like the southeastern area. And he says this, he says, watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. I think that's so true in everything that we do. What starts as a a small thought in our mind can really affect the way our whole life plays out. My thoughts about my interactions with Alan really became the words that I said, that I, I thought that we weren't close, so I said that we weren't close, which affected my actions, that I wasn't acting close to him, which affected uh, the habits. I didn't have a habit of interacting with him. And from there, it just sort of like, that was the first like two years that he worked here. We didn't really interact. And it wasn't until this most recent year that we began to interact. And I've loved it. And it's been great. But it started with those thoughts. And so I think what, what Frank Outlaw says is so true. And I see it echoed in Philippians 4. In Philippians 4, verse 6, uh, Paul is writing to this church in, in Philippi, and he's giving them some instructions, and he says this. In verse 6, he says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need, and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. In this next slide, I highlighted some, some key parts in it. When he says, don't worry, I highlighted this worry part. And I said, well, worry, worry sort of goes back, if you think to this Frank, Ocean, Frank, sorry, Frank Outlaw analogy where he says, watch your thoughts. I think that worry is a thought. It's a way that we think. We, we see a situation in our life or we see something, a crisis, and, and we begin to worry, and it's a thought that starts there. And then Paul continues, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And I thought, well, pray that becomes uh, sort of words, along with this next sentence where he says, tell God what you need. Both of those are words. So now, instead of thinking worry, we're going to begin to change our thoughts, and we're going to begin to change our words, and now we're going to pray, and we're going to tell God what we need. Then we're going to move into thank him for all he has done, which is an action. So now that we've changed our thoughts from worry to no longer worrying, we're now changing our thoughts, and we're more God-focused instead of situation-focused. We're more Christ-focused instead of crisis-focused. Now that we've changed our thoughts, we're changing our words. Instead of talking to other people about how worried we are and how terrible the situation are, we're now changing our words to, to praying to God and telling him what we need, and it's changing our actions to where now we're thankful. Instead of being a, a posture of worry and, and anxiety, it's now this posture of thankfulness. And there's this implied continuance in this. It doesn't necessarily outright say, do this over and over again, repeat, step, repeat steps one through four. But instead, it's sort of this implied that if you've got 99 problems and a shortness of problems is not one of them, then you can assume that don't worry doesn't just apply to the first three. Instead, it applies to all of them. And he's saying, don't worry. Every time that you have a worry, don't worry. Instead, do this thing. So this implied, implied continuance over and over creates this habit. Frank Outlaw said, watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. And your character becomes your destiny. What's so interesting about this is in verse 7, he says, then you will experience God's peace. He doesn't say then your situation will change. 
He says, then you'll experience God's peace. Because what we're thinking is so powerful. Our thoughts and our beliefs will dictate our experience. The experiences will come in line with the thoughts and our beliefs. And Paul is writing this. He's saying, don't worry. Instead, tell God. Pray about it. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your mind as you live in Christ Jesus. The next verse immediately after this says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Our thoughts are so powerful. In closing of this long letter, Paul has written to this church. He's encouraged them. He's corrected them. He's challenged them, and he's, he's equipped them. And in his closing remarks, it centers on our thoughts, on not worrying and instead changing those things that become so building. It's not just a thought in and of itself, but it's a thought that leads to words, that leads to actions, that leads to habits, that really changes the course of your life. Henry Ford was once quoted as saying, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. And I think that's so true. I see it with students all the time. They've proven time and time again to me as I get the privilege of of working with our young people, 6th through 12th graders. um, I'm convinced that they will rise to the standard that's been set. They will rise to the occasion, whether that's a very low bar or a very high bar. Uh, They continually surprise us. Even right now, uh, this week has kicked off May, which in the student ministry is the student month. Uh, and so we give our students a chance to live out what we've been telling them all year, that, that they can minister, that they have the Holy Spirit, and not some sort of like light version or free version or junior version, but instead they've got the full-blown thing. And so we tell them for 11 months out of the year, you can minister, and you can be great, and you can pray for people, and you can do this. And then when May comes around, we say, all right, now let's do it. And so we let them run the show with some guidance and with some guidelines and with some good guardrails, but we let them run the show and we let them do it, and we see them rise to the occasion every time. Um, but for the students that, that are spoken over them that, oh, you'll never amount to anything. Oh, you're, you're, you're only going to be rebellious because you're a teenager. Or you're only going to be good at video games and wasting time. Like Those, those students, those children, they achieve that in, in spades. They nail that. Because that's like the standard, that's the bar that's been set for them. But as we raise the bar for our young people, as we say, you know what, you can minister, they run an entire youth service for, for 100 plus people. Like they're over there like nailing it and doing an incredible job. And we see that year after year. And so I'm a firm believer that what Henry Ford is saying, whether you think you can or think you can't, that rings so true. And not just with a, a sort of like human temporal truth, but it feels like biblical wisdom. And we see that echoed in, in Proverbs 23. In, in Proverbs 23, verse 7, the context is um, the, the proverbist, the author is writing about um, not, not having dinner with people who say one thing, but in their hearts do something else. They invite you in. They say, oh yeah, come on over, like have dinner with us. It'll be fun. But in their hearts, they're like, he better not eat that last slice of pizza. Like they're, they're very bitter about you being there. And in, in one version of it, New King James says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. It's not just the words that come out, but it's the way that we're thinking about ourselves. It's the way that we are internally, that that's really going to affect the course of our life. And so our thoughts don't just affect us internally, 
but they bleed out. It's not just like, a, you know, think more positive and you'll have a positive life. That's not where I'm going with this tonight, although there's some truth in that as well. It's that our thoughts determine how we respond to God. Just going back to my story with Alan and I, like my thoughts about Alan, my thoughts, my own insecurities affected my relationship with him. Our thoughts about who God is and how he is and how he relates to us really affect how we respond to him. A.W. Tozer says this. It's a long quote, so I threw up here so you could read it with me. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, period. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't like period, sort of, but also these other things. He's really convinced this is the most important thing about us. He continues on. He says, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the contemporary of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. I think that's so powerful. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I see that because as we go back to sort of that opening quote about your thoughts become your words and your words become your actions and yada, yada, on and on. When we think about God in a certain way, what comes to our mind when we think of like who is God and what is God, what comes to our mind affects our words, which affect our actions, which affects so many things, this chain reaction of how we respond to God. The story of Gideon is talked about a lot. and He's a mighty warrior and all these things. But I want to look at it from a slightly different light. If you flip open to Judges chapter 6, in those first verses, it does a little bit of, of kind of background. It says it. And if you even peek at the last verses before it, it talks about there was peace for 40 years, and then things all went to pot. Like everything broke down, and it was bad. And we pick up in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, and it says, The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. And the Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, the caves, and the strongholds. It goes on to talk about how terrible the Midianites were. And then in verse 6 it says, So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Seven years of just trauma, of getting ransacked, of, of this sort of uh, enemy occupation, um, all of these bad things. They're having to hide out in caves and in wells, and they're just trying to like just get a little bit of bread for themselves, and they're reduced to starvation, and then they realize, you know what? We used to have this God that helped us a lot. Let's, let's cry out to him. And in verse 7, it continues. It says, when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord, your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. And then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. 
Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and hadn't handed us over to the Midianites? Gideon's perspective of God is very, you abandoned us, you left us, you disregarded us, we are, we are hopeless and we have nothing. And so when the Lord sends the prophet, some of the first things that he does is, is he starts to remind the people, okay, I did this for you, and I did this for you, and I did this for you, and I want to do these things for you. And then as soon as he reveals himself to Gideon, he's saying, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Already knowing that Gideon's thoughts are, the Lord has abandoned us. And because that's his thoughts, those are his words and his actions, and that is how he's responding to God is, God has abandoned me. And so I'm holding him at arm's length. And God is looking down from heaven saying, I want to use this guy. But his thoughts are that I've abandoned him. And so the Lord sends down what the Bible describes as the angel of the Lord. And he says, the Lord is with you to Gideon. Counteracting the thoughts. Knowing that, that before Gideon needed to hear anything about this master plan to defeat the enemy. Before he needed to hear anything about uh, what would happen next. He needed to know that the Lord was with him continues Gideon, well, if the Lord's with us, then why did all this bad stuff happen? Where are all the miracles? And the Lord continues, he says, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Edenites. I am sending you. And in verse 15, the Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest. He's coming up with excuses. In the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least of my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. The only thing he said to Gideon up until this point is, I am with you. He's saying, go. He's saying, you know, take what strength you have. But he's saying, I am sending you and I'm with you. And he says it twice. Because Gideon's whole thought is, the Lord has abandoned us. And so God is changing that. And he's flipping that around. He's saying, no, 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 I am with you. What's interesting in this story is the Lord wasn't changing Gideon's situation. The Lord was changing Gideon's mind. He wasn't changing his circumstances. He wasn't changing the Midianites. He wasn't showing up to to Gideon to say, hey, come out from hiding. I already destroyed your enemy. Instead, he was changing Gideon's mind about the situation so that he could use Gideon to affect the situation. It wasn't that God just showed up and, and smote all the people and they were all gone and destroyed. And then he was appearing to say, look, now I've done this great thing. He said, no, no, no. I am with you. He was changing Gideon's thoughts so that Gideon could change the circumstances. Our thoughts determine how we respond to God. If we think that God is distant, then we're going to respond to him like he's distant. If we think that he's angry with us, if we think that he's punishing us, we're responding to him like he's angry at us and he's punishing us. But that doesn't change the true nature of God. That just changes our perspective of it. Again, Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because from there, that, that sets the foundation for how we pray, that sets the foundation for how we worship, that sets the foundation for our whole life of relationship with God is what comes in, into our mind. I was having a, a discussion with a, another guy that I grew up with some months ago, and we were talking, and somehow we got on the topic of God and sort of what he was doing um, 
it's been a crate like 2016 was just sort of crazy all sorts of things in the news all sorts of things politically even just in sports like we had crazy upsets and and so all these things were happening and so we sort of got to talking about how it was being affected and how God was sort of in the midst of it but he kept this guy that I was talking with kept saying things and I was like no I don't agree with that and so I'd sort of say it. and so what started is like we were both very excited that God was at, at he was moving even if we didn't understand it it was clear that like something was happening and then somehow we sort of got on two different paths and we were like no 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 and we were we weren't seeing eye to eye quite exactly and then he came out and he, and and somehow it unfolded and he said well I don't think that God loves everyone and I said, well, that's ridiculous. Like, of course God loves everyone. Like, John three sixteen. like, we all know that. Like, for God so loved the, the whole world. And he's like, no, like, and he was pointing out these weird, like, sort of Old Testament things where, like, God told the Israelites to, like, wipe out a, a group of people. And I, and I said, yeah, but the cross changed all of that. Like, that was an old covenant and an old system that's totally different. And he's, you know, and so we got into this whole discussion, and it just really wasn't getting anywhere. Because when people are set on something in their minds, it's hard to sort of, like, talk them out of that. That's a, that's a whole thing. And so he was being really stubborn and I was fairly confident. I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I've, I've got this one. And finally I said, you know what? I, I think we're talking about two different gods. And it offended him. Uh, and he was so caught off guard because we grew up together. We went to like the same church and like he knows that we're both Christian and we both serve like the Lord. But I said, I, I don't think we're talking about the same God. Because I was so fundamentally convinced that like my God loves everyone and he was fairly convinced that his God doesn't. And I thought, well, that must not be the same God. But it got me thinking like what, at what level, Tozer says that we move towards our mental image of God. When we think about God, what comes into our minds, it defines us, it affects us, it changes how we respond to God. And so I started thinking, well, at what point is the picture that we're painting in our mind of, of God, at what point does that maybe become an idol? If we were to worship a, a golden calf or a wooden statue, it would be very easy to say, that guy's crazy, he's worshiping an idol. But when the God of the Bible describes himself in one way, and then in our minds, we paint him just slightly different, it's not so black and white to say like, this is God and that's an idol. But maybe we begin to drift to where we're worshiping our own version of God and not God as he would like to be, to be worshipped. I remember being much younger, and I had a close friend uh, whose mom was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, the church I was a part of at the time, huge believer uh, in prayer and in healing. And so we prayed for her kind of like every time we met. Um, she was this active volunteer, and everyone loved her, and the family was prominent. And so we prayed all the time, and we prayed fervently, and we prayed and prayed and prayed, and she died. And it was heartbreaking. It was really sad. And I remember uh, sort of during this time being at an age where I was really trying to wrestle like, okay, God, like, I know this is true, but it doesn't always line up with my experiences and, and trying to wrestle with like, what is the truth in this? And so in my frustration, I was saying, God, why did you, why did you take her? God, why did you do this? And, and it was weird because I'm, I'm a little like spatial in the sense of like geometry is my jam and I get that sort of like shapes and space and all those things. And I felt like I was praying like this of like, God, why did you do this? Why did she die? Why did you take her? And it felt like God spoke to me from here and he said, I don't know who you're talking to, but I didn't, I didn't do that. And it was so weird for me because it, it almost like I almost jumped in that moment because I was so intense here thinking I was praying to God. And then God was here saying, 
I don't know who you're talking to, but like that's not my character. That's not what I do. That's not who I am. That wasn't how things happened. And it changed so much for me in that, in that moment. I didn't have any greater understanding of why bad things happen to good people. I didn't have any greater understanding of why the truth of God says this, but sometimes my circumstances look different. I didn't have any greater understanding, but in that moment, I w- it was enough to say, okay, God, I don't get it, but I'll trust you. And it changed my thought, which changed my words, which changed my prayers, which has really changed my life. That was a... That was a pinnacle moment for me, a keystone moment for me where, where everything began to sort of shift because, not because God changed, but because of the way I thought about him changed. And so it took me back to this conversation that I was having with this other guy that I know. And I thought, I, I think we're, we're talking about two different gods. And it totally offended him. And it totally like, I can't believe you say that. Like what? But in my heart, I was thinking, yeah, like if, if God describes himself this way and we talk about him like he's a different way, that might not be him. Like, I would be so offended if someone was talking about me in a way that was different than, than who I am. If they were telling someone like, oh, well, I heard Andrew hates food, and he just wishes that everything tasted bland, and he doesn't even like his daughter, I would be so offended that I would be like, no, 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 that is not me. I will set the record straight. I love tacos. Food is delicious. And my daughter's the best. Like, I would very quickly set all of those things straight, and it and I imagine that God in his graciousness and his patience, like, I'm so thankful that he doesn't just like rip open the roof of the building on a Sunday morning and being like, okay, listen here, half of you guys are missing it and I'm gonna like reveal this to me. In his patience and in his goodness and his graciousness, he is, he is slow to, to work on us. Uh, he doesn't just like uproot us and yell at us and be like, I can't believe you're so, yada, yada. He's gracious and kind with us, but I, it makes me wonder like, how often have we painted a different version of God and he is standing here in his goodness and his faithfulness and we're over here shouting at some sort of picture that we've created of, of who we think God is. And we think we're praying to God and we're, we're totally missing him. He's over there saying, I don't know who you're talking to, but it's not me. We are always moving towards our mental image of God. And so it's so important that we build this foundation of understanding who God truly is. In John chapter 14, Philip, who's, you know, we're 14 chapters into this thing. He's been one of the disciples for a while now. He's seen Jesus again and again. He says, addressing Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. He's speaking for the group and he says, okay, Jesus, we've been doing this ministry thing for a while. It's going great, but we really just want to see God. We want to see the Father. We've seen you, and you're really nice, but we want to see the Father. And, and Jesus replied, have I been with you this whole time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Philip asks to see the Father, and Jesus responds, you still don't know who I am. In his response already, we see that there's this this unseparable connection between Jesus and the Father. But he goes on to spell it out for the disciples because some of them are a little dense. And he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Jesus is what God is like. In, in Colossians 1, it says it even better. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. 
He existed before anything was created and supreme over all creation. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And I think that's so great. As we're trying to create a more accurate version of what is God like, as, I, as I'm constantly working to sort of like, okay, God, help me correct any, any faulty perception of you, I'm constantly brought back to the Gospels, to just looking of like, okay, well, what did Jesus do? Jesus is my sort of perfect picture of new, new covenant, new, new testament God. Like, this is what Jesus is like. And so I'm constantly going back and rereading and seeing like the kindness that he showed the children and the love that he had for strangers and, and the way that he treated even the social outcasts of the time. Like that is the love that I see emanated and, and exemplified by this visible image of the invisible God. And I think, okay, now, now my mental image of God has to have more love. Like I've got to paint him now with a lot more love because I didn't have enough love before and now I need to paint with more love. And then I see him show grace again and again when, when Peter is constantly putting his foot in his mouth, he's gracious and he's kind and he's forgiving and I think, okay, I need to go back and I need to add more forgiveness to my picture of God in my mind. And as we move towards this mental image of God, we have to begin to, to be willing to, well, as 2 Corinthians 10 puts it, it says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So as we, as we sort of move towards this, like, okay, God, I want to know your character and I want to know who you are and, and how you do things. We have to demolish the arguments and the pretensions that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Christ is saying that God looks like this. And if our picture doesn't line up with that, we have to be willing to, to take captive each of those thoughts and to uh, demolish the other like faulty pictures of them and the paintings that we've made in the past that say that God looks like Zeus on a hill throwing lightning bolts. You know, we need to take that down and we just need to say, okay, it needs to look more like Jesus and less like this sort of angry deity that's distant and moody and broody and lots of like thunder and lightning. It needs to look more like Jesus holding some children on his lap. Even when the disciples said, no, 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 he's too busy. And Jesus said, no, 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 I want to make time for them. Like, they're really important in the kingdom of God. Let them come and sit on my lap. And, and he's laughing. Sometimes I have this mental picture now of the, the image of Jesus, real popular on the internet. And he's sort of like smiling and like he's got the like finger guns. I don't know why that's important, but he was in there and he's like smiling. And I think, yeah, that's a little bit more accurate as I read through the gospels than the picture that I grew up with. Like growing up in sort of the religious South, like I had a very different picture of Jesus. And now I'm realizing Jesus is a little bit more fun than I had painted him. I didn't have any fun in my painting of God. And now I'm realizing I got to go back and I got to add a lot more fun. Uh, The way Jesus just sort of like scares, scares the mess out of the disciples. They're hiding in the upper room and he comes back from the dead and he just appears you know, they've got doors locked and barred and he just shows up and he's like, Hey guys, I'm here. And they all freak out. Like I'm, I'm positive. They all freak out. They think they're seeing a ghost and they're like, Oh my gosh, is it really him? The way he does that, I think he has more fun than we give him credit for. And so I'm going back to my mental picture of God and I'm, and I'm painting it with a lot more fun now, a lot more grace, a lot more love, a lot more forgiveness because I'm saying, God, I need to have a true picture of you because it defines everything that I build my life on the way I pray, the way I worship, the way I, I relate to him, that respond to him. It doesn't change who God is, but it changed how I respond to him. Saul, in, in Acts chapter 9, we sort of see another great example of this, where our thoughts really change how we respond to God. 
Uh, in verse three, we'll pick up his story. Um, right before this, it says that he was breathing murderous threats to what at the time what they were calling the way. It was the new Christian church. Uh, for the longest time, they had you know Judaism, but now Christ had died, was uh, resurrected. The apostles are going out. They're teaching. They're preaching. All these incredible things are happening, and this movement is springing up, and it's just exploding. And Saul takes it on as his life mission. He's like, I'm going to destroy this thing for the Lord. I'm going to crush this uprising for God. And he goes out and it says uh, in verse three, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground, a light so bright, it knocks him off of his horse. Falls to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse five, he says, who are you, Lord? If you were here on Sunday, you heard Pastor Zach talk about the importance of Lord and teacher. Saul didn't just recognize this as like, who are you, well-lit man? Like, who are you, very shining person? He said, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. Jesus appeared to Saul and didn't correct any of his behaviors, didn't correct any of his character, didn't correct any of his habits, didn't correct any of his words. He corrected his thought because Saul thought he was serving God. He had letters from the leading priests at the time. Like the the religious elite had commissioned him to go and do the things that he was doing. So he thought he was serving God. He had one, one thought and Jesus showed up and said, no, 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 no. That's not actually who I am. Here's who I am. I'm Jesus. And that one, that one paradigm shift changed everything for Saul. He changes his name to Paul. He gets welcomed in after some uh, warranted nervousness from the apostles. He gets welcomed in, goes on to write like a third of the New Testament, um, evangelizes most of Asia, and does this powerful work. And the, and the, the beginning of it, the moment that, that it all shifts, is when he gets this accurate understanding of who, who God is. That God was no longer the Old Testament and he was now the New Testament. He was now Jesus. He wasn't just what the leading priest had described. Saul, now Paul, had gotten a, a paradigm shift, a new thought of who Jesus was, and it changed how he responded to him, and it changed everything. We have the ability to control our thoughts, and we need to take the thoughts captive that are contrary to the true image of God that are working against the, the true knowledge of Christ. When you think of God, what is it that comes to mind? Do you have sort of this angry, very brooding picture of God? Do you have a kind of a, a happy-go-lucky, jolly-looking guy? Do you have something somewhere in between? Do you have someone that's a lot of justice and very little love? Or do you have someone that's a lot of love and very little justice? I believe that everything the Bible says about God is very true, but we have to be very almost committed that our image of God cannot just be a casual thing that we pick up. We've got to be sort of serious about worshiping God as he is and not just worshiping our own version of God. We've got to be fairly committed to praying to God as he is in the way that fits his character and not just praying to the version of God that we like. We sort of laugh at, 
at the people who treat God like a genie that, you know, want nothing to do with them until things go bad. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm rubbing this lamp and I need three wishes. God, do this, this, and this. We sort of laugh at that, but, but that person has a picture of God and they are moving towards that mental image of God and, and that's who they're worshiping. And, and so we, this should be something that, that at our core we think, oh, like, is my image of God really what the Bible describes? Is it really what Jesus personifies? Is it his examples? Because if not, like, we may risk a sort of aversion of idolatry in a very extreme case. If nothing else, we're selling ourselves short and we're missing out on so much that God has for us, which is, which is one of the things I want to talk about next week and I'm so excited for. But here are some things I want to leave you with. I want to encourage you to be conscious of what you're thinking in regards to God's character, to his goodness, his ability, and his temperament. This week, whether you're having your quiet time or you're listening to a podcast or worship or prayer, whatever it is, however you're connecting with God, I want you to just sort of be conscious of like, how am I picturing God in this moment? When I'm interacting with him, how do I perceive him and and how do I paint him to be? Do I need to add some more love or do I need to add some more goodness into the picture of God? And if this resonates with you at all, I want you to consider creating some daily declarations. This is what, as I've been on this journey of, of sort of reimagining what God is, is actually like, a truer version of him, uh, the Lord has been challenging me to create these daily declarations. And so on my whiteboard every day, I read these uh, five things. Number one is, I live a supernatural life. Number two, my heavenly father loves me. I read these every day. I read them and I say them out loud because sometimes we we say things because we believe it and other times we need to say things because we need to believe it. Sometimes we say it because we believe it, but other times we need to say it because we need to believe it. And so I remind myself every day, number three, my God is good and he is always in a good mood. That was one of the things I struggled with. My, like my human dad, which sometimes we have this tendency to sort of project our human fathers onto our, our heavenly father, my human dad, when my sister and I were growing up, if we wanted something, she'd be like, oh, go ask dad. And I'd go into the house and I'd be like, you know, what? I'm not going to ask him right now. We'll come back later. Now's not a great time. Like there's some tension in the room. I can feel it. And so like we'd ask him later. And I had projected that onto, onto my heavenly father, thinking that there were times that I could come and I could ask something. And then there were other times where I'd be like, oh, you know what? I, I wasn't good enough this week. So he's probably upset with me. And I should, I should really say a few more prayers before I come back. But that's, that's not an accurate view of God. And so I'm reminding myself every day, okay, my heavenly father loves me. My God is good. And he's always in a good mood. Number four, I walk in the favor and blessings of God. He is constantly giving me good gifts. Um, I, I applaud hard work and I'm all about, you know, hard work and diligence and, and the Proverbs are filled with, you know, he who doesn't work, doesn't eat, like those sort of things. I get that, that's biblical principles and it's true, but there's only so much that I can do and I'm trusting God that he's doing everything else. And so like, these are things that I'm, I'm saying them every day because I have to reimagine who God is. And I've got years of picturing God as one way. And so it's taking more than just a couple mornings of saying these things to really fully change my mind, but I'm doing it every day. I'm waking up and I'm saying, okay, number five, I am generous and I give liberally. That's less about God, but it's more about me, and, but it still feeds into that, and you guys can get that. And, and so sometimes we say these things because we believe them, but for a lot of us, like, we'll have to write our own daily declarations. You guys will have to go home and say, okay, how have I been picturing God? What is Jesus really like? And what are the declarations I need to begin saying so that I begin believing? How do I move that from a head knowledge of, okay, I know that Jesus was kind and nice and loving and good, still 
truthful and justice and, and honest and all those things, but how do I move that from my head to my heart? And, and I firmly believe daily declarations. Like same every day, work them into your spirit, work them into your heart, work them into your soul. Allow me to pray for you guys. This is, this is all I have for this week. Next week, we'll take this a step further. This week, we talked about how our thoughts affect how we respond to God. Next week, we'll talk about how our thoughts affect how we allow God to respond to us. Um, but for this week, allow me to pray and close and, and just sort of seal this in your heart. Father, we love you so much, and you are so good. But Father, I pray that you would begin to reveal the true nature of your character, of your personality, of who you are and how you are. Lord, I pray that you'd begin to reveal that to us. Father, that your Holy Spirit, as we read through the Gospels, as we read through the New Testament, Father, that those words would leap off the page and we would have fresh revelation of of all the different aspects of your character. That it wouldn't just be this stale image of what someone else thought that you were like. But Lord, I pray that we would actively move to have a truer picture of who you are that we wouldn't worship our own version of you, uh, that we wouldn't distance ourselves because we're worried that you're mad at us or upset with us, but Father, that we would recognize that because of what Jesus did on the cross, it changed everything. And we no longer have this transactional relationship, but Father, instead, we have undeserved grace, we have unmerited mercy, and we have unconditional love. And Father, I pray that with the knowledge of those things, we would begin to construct a truer picture of who you are so that we can lay a firm foundation that we can move forward on. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thank you for letting me share with you guys tonight. I hope you have an incredible week.